City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, the acres and acres of tar and cement, and uh, you've got the, the sort of tar and cement in my head this morning. Um, I'm Kevin Healy, and uh, Corey, well, actually, Mike Smith's pressing the buttons because Corey's in a taxi somewhere, lost in traffic, but she'll be here soon. Um, she rang up in a state of not quite panic, but just to explain that she'd come by cab this morning because she was probably running late anyway, and therefore she's, uh, she's out there in a traffic jam, but we'll be here soon. And it is the fourth Wednesday of the month, and um, because of that, we've got no specific civic subject, but we are going to go up to Ipswich today, in the um, pretty soon actually in the program, um, which is where, those who mightn't be aware and probably aren't aware, and what's it matter anyway, but it's where Corey comes from and she is aware of an issue up there, which is toxic waste, because when we talk to Helen Vandenberg down here about the tunnel marine situation that's been going on for years, the same company, Trans-Pacific, has one up there that, by the sound of it, makes the one here at Tunnel Marine look benign, and... Um, We'll, get, uh, we'll be talking to one of the people up there involved in, in what's happening with that, but it does sound like a horrific situation up there with this toxic waste or this waste dump, which in which Corey tells me includes wasting, uh, throwing some nuclear waste into it, she tells me, so it's pretty awful. So that's the main item on the program today, and uh, hopefully at the end of the program, and it is hopefully, because I left a message yesterday, but she hasn't got back, but then the Vandenbergs do tend to be very busy and go to meetings all the time, and often in the morning you get a call from Helen in the middle of the show saying, yes, I'm okay. I'm hoping Helen can come on toward the end and comment on what uh, we talk about about Ipswich, but if she doesn't, we won't have it, which is pure logic if you think about it. Um, Okay, a couple of things before we go on, then I'll just rave on, um, and Corey will be here soon. But one I did want to talk about was following the rally last Saturday. Uh, apparently, I didn't hear it, but I heard on on um, on um, on the Going Home show last night uh, with Jan Bartlett that John Fain interviewed people yesterday and apparently did his usual aggressive thing about stopping free speech. The fascists have a right to free speech, and we were violent, etc., etc. Um, and and so this thing about free speech, I thought – I didn't hear it, so someone might have rung and made the point. But the famous – I think it was Bonhoeffer, wasn't it? The famous quote that gets gets quoted so often now about first they came for the gypsies, then they came for etc., and finally they came for me and no one, etc. Now, someone should suggest to those people who say they have a right to free speech, at what point should people have intervened in that situation – and stopped the rise of fascism and the rise of Nazism in that period because um, should they just let them go to the point where it came up and uh, or do you stop them in their tracks early in the piece? And that's something I think worth having a yarn about. But, um, and, uh, but apparently it's right to let them go and have their right to free speech. They, of course, depend... If, someone, if they deny free speech to anyone, anyone who opposes them, they, they physically attack, but that seems to be OK because... Uh, they don't get attacked for that. Um, but I, I raise that because in court in the last week or so, there's a woman who was the scriptwriter or the speechwriter for, um, her name's Lucinda Holdforth, for um, 
for Alan Joyce, the head of Qantas, and she was there. She actually wrote his speech during that. You probably followed this story, but wrote his speech during the uh, the big dispute where they locked the workers out, etc. And she's written a book about it, and Qantas has taken it to court to stop the book being published. And in fact, they have succeeded in stopping the book being published, and she's now only allowed to publish a 30-page extract. But the, none of those feature Qantas or any confidential matters. Now, it seems to me that these sort of people are the ones who'd run around saying we all have a right to free speech. We hear, of course, the media, Murdoch, etc., day by day, telling us his right to free speech and freedom of the press. But I would have thought suppressing someone wanting to publish a book about something is, is denying their right to free speech. But apparently that's all right when it involves business and uh, and uh, commercial incompetence matters, as, as the uh, court ruled. But... Uh, not okay if we want to um, slow down the the freedom, of so-called freedom of speech of the fascist movement in this country, which I've just found rather interesting as a contradiction. That's all. I just thought I'd raise that one, Mike. Um, speaking of that, Mike, I'll just come up to the mic and I'll pour myself a cup of tea because I'm the only one drinking it here today, I think, at the moment. Anyway, I'll just pour a cup of tea for myself so you can hear that. There we go. Hear that? Good cup of tea. Mike's drinking coffee on the other side of the mic. I'll have a sip of the tea now. Listen to this. Ah, see, that was rude. Yeah, sip like that. Uh, now, another item I thought I'd, I'd raise, speaking of freedom, the freedom to, um, to, to advertise and do what you want to do. Uh, Fanta, which of course is part of Coca-Cola, and here's, um, here's Corey just wandered in the door. Um, and Mike's about to wander out with his cup of coffee. Um, there we are. And uh, Fanta has had an ad pulled from television because it breached the guidelines for marketing unhealthy drinks to kids, and uh, which is r- rare because usually the Advertising Standards Board rules in favour of the advertisers and the commercial interests. But in this case, it did rule that the ad uh, was aimed at kids, and after all, etc. The uh, in fact. Uh, the drink itself has something like a 450ml bottle has 14 teaspoons of sugar. But Coca-Cola South Pacific spokeswoman Sarah Presswood said the soft drink giant had a long-standing policy against direct marketing to children. So this must have been a pure accident, Corey, that this one landed on the thing and the, the expensive ad was aimed at kids. She said the Fanta tastes like ad and an associated app were no longer in use in Australia, describing rulings over the theme, visuals and language of the campaign as valuable feedback. So they, didn't, they obviously didn't realise what advertising for kids meant. Oh, good. Yeah, just thought I'd mention that. Um, when I, I put one aside till you arrived, Corey, because um, I, I thought this was one I wanted to bounce off you. There was a story in the paper a couple of weeks ago, uh, a report done by uh, called the Glass Ceiling Index by some um, consultants of some sort. Gender inequality is still rife in Australian business, with men earning more than women in 411 out of 433 occupations. Uh, in Australia, it then says, which is redundant and it's bad journalism because it uses in Australia twice in the same sentence. But anyway. It's terrible. Where's the copy editor? <laughs> oh, that's right. And it says a man is 4.6 times more likely than a woman in Australia to reach a high-paying role when average males earn 24 grand per annum more than women working in the same role. The study showed... Uh, over the past five years, the income gap between men and women has increased by 3,200. The worst jobs for gender inequality were electrical distribution and trades workers, sports people and bank employees. In the banking industry, men were nine times more likely than women to be in a highly paid role when they earned on average $40,000 more. And it goes on. I won't 
go. But what so I raise the sport. In the, say, the banking or the sporting industry, how on earth do men use their genitals? Um, um, well, bank stuff people all the time, so I suppose, you know, that's, oh, we could we could so be... So that even, is relevant. We could be even ruder, I suppose, <laughs> but we won't. I, I just, why are they getting paid more for having these other genitals? Um, probably there's... I, well, I, I, look, I simply can't answer. You, you've stuffed me. I, I, I'm very hard to stuff with an answer, but I've just, you've just stuffed me. All right. But, but I raise that because uh, obviously a deep thinker called Colin Delane of Leeming, Western Australia, a few days later turned up with the lead letter in the Financial Review and listen to the logic of the old Colin. This is good. Once again, commentators are making assumptions when they are in no position to do so and are drawing unjustified conclusions. A gender pay gap does not necessarily provide any evidence of pay discrimination. Oh, good. A pay gap... You know why? Because it's women's own fault for choosing (laughs) jobs... That don't pay enough. Is that what but, he's going to say next? Well, no, he's not. He but doesn't it, say that? No, he, he sort of. No, no, he says, by relying solely on numerical values, <laughs> and then he carries on about um, about the, using the tax system anyway, but solely on numerical values, which I thought were fairly important in this issue, mm. uh, for the glass ceiling index study, the conclusion drawn by authors Blackwattle Co. and in turn by Yolanda Vegas, she's Executive Director of Australian Women Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and she gets quoted in that earlier article, um, that these results somehow indicate women have been discriminated against when it comes to pay are without foundation. One can only justify such a conclusion if the journey of every individual, etc., can be tracked, and he goes on and on in that vein. But I thought things like numerical, uh, the fact that they're earning less doesn't prove they're earning less, etc., is pretty logical. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, people use uh, numbers emotively all the time, I'm sure. Um, they do. There's nothing like cold hard facts. <laughs> oh hell no! Speaking of numerical numbers and cold, or that's a, that's a, that's a tautology as well, Kevin. You, speaking of numericals, um, and um, and money and such things, mm-hmm. you'll be pleased to know because you know recently it was announced that young James and Lockie, well they're not that young anymore, but but Rupert's boys mm-hmm. uh, were taking over the company, mm-hmm. and we're pleased to know that they're now at the once they take over this year next year. Uh, their salaries could reach with, with additions, etc., a mere thirty-six point six million a year. Isn't that wonderful? Thirty-six point six million a year for Lockie and uh, and Young James. And what are they doing to earn that? Um, Do they have super genitals? Well, they're doing things like bringing out those wonderful front pages of the Herald Sun we all love, those unbiased coverage, that, that freedom of the press that we admire. Mm-hmm. Chase Carey, who's been running it, waiting for the boys to take over, he's going to retire next year, but he's going to stay on a two-year consulting fee of $20 million a year. For two years, $20 million a year, over and above what he'll he get when he leaves anyway. So that's pretty good, isn't it? I know this is radio, so I'll just describe. You can't actually see me banging my head on, my, on the desk. Yeah, I can see the bruising now. It's starting already. <laughs> Look, it's already starting. It's quite nasty, actually. Twenty yeah. million a year for consulting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wow. How was the I'll ca- take that job. <laughs> you're your consultant to City Limits <laughs> at our usual fee. <laughs> well, I'm consultant to City Limits at our usual fee as well. Um, yeah, the that's pretty good. The um, the other one I thought worth mentioning is that um, the, you'll be pleased to know the National Rifle Association in America, which you know comes in, it's it's actually made comments about Australia, and it says that the Australian gun laws aren't working because 
they've taken away our freedom to have guns. Mm. Yeah, we, we have, we're not free anymore, um, which is pretty awful. Yeah, well, I think it's also taken away our freedom to have um, mass shootings every year. Yeah, that's another one that, that we miss out on as well. I know. America enjoys. In I fact, mean, we had one, apparently we had one basically every year um, leading up until the Port Arthur massacre and then when they... When they took our guns away, it stopped them. Yeah, the figures do show that, but that, and, why, and why did the logic fun get in, in the life? way? Where's the fun in life without, you know, a shoot good people up. American-style mass shooting every year? Yeah, well, the I mean, logic's never been a big thing for the National Rifle Association, but anyway, that's, that's the go. Okay. But they also say that the recent uh, shooting in that church in America, the racist uh, church mm-hmm. murder... Uh, there would have been less people killed if the people in the church had all had guns. You know, I heard a good one actually from them. Uh, school shootings wouldn't happen if teachers had guns. Ah, oh, yes, that's right. But, uh, so I don't sh- know. I think that teachers would have to be paid a lot more and have a lot better hours. I mean, that. They're so stressed out, I, I don't know, giving, giving teachers guns just doesn't seem like... A... I think they'd want to be paid a lot more because they'd be the first person shot. <laughs> Just can you imagine? You've it. got that little <laughs> shit of a kid who's been getting at you for five months, and you have a gun in the room. I don't know, like. Well, there you are. The the um, well, was, I suppose you were pleased the other day to see Her Most Gracious Majesty with the fascist salute, were you? <laughs> <laughs> and her, of course, her grandson gets around in a Nazi outfit. He's pretty good. Mm. Uh, I just thought I'd also raise, and then we'll go to that interview because we want to get on to it. Mm. Uh, but super uh, depressing. Super depressing. I don't think we've depressed the audience enough yet. No, this one's going to do the trick oh, today. Oh, this gonna, is going to be it. This will make housing like a day of laughs, like a comedy show. Um, the uh, but Monday, incredibly, the Australian, probably the most conservative paper in Australia, carried the story about the young woman at Grill, the um, uh, that place, yes. Yes, who was totally underpaid, not given you know the whole thing, the fact that she was being ripped off, although the that were allegedly ripped off because the it's being defended by Grilled. Because uh, their their contract goes back to when they could make contracts without unions um, under work work choices and mm-hmm. uh, etc. But anyway, the claim that she's been terribly ripped off, and of course, when she complained about it, she was sacked because she was showing disrespect to her caring employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same day, the Herald Sun had a story: hotel slavery claims. Four five seven visa worker says she was paid three dollars an hour, and there's one there about a Filipino woman and her, her and partner. Grilled must have been just spewing that they didn't oh, think of that. That's right. That's right. Well, it's a dollar more than um, than Gina's prepared to pay happy, happy Africans. Mm. Although she wants $2 a day, so it's a lot more. Mm. Um, it's double. Yeah, it's, well, it's more than double. $2 a day and $3 an hour, and she was working, you know, 80, hours, 80 90 hours weeks or something. Um, anyway, to put that aside, because that, even in the Murdoch media, those two stories are right. The same day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. none of those rip-offs of workers appeared in the Financial Review on Monday. No, you think that the uh, payment of money would would yes, be fin- yes. financial in its nature? Well, they did have similar stories, though. They had a front page pointer saying union claims threaten Gorgon, which is the company running the Chevron thing out on Gorgon Island. You know the the Barrow Island thing off Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Turn to page three. CFMEU defies union royal commission. Mm-hmm. Go further into the book. 
strike threat poses new risk to 73 billion Gorgon gas project. And then you go to the feature page and a, a Liberal member of Parliament says, unions not needed for bargaining. And he says there's no longer any need for unions at all to, in the industrial relations situation. Hmm. Then you go to Tuesday following that and their the, anti-union totally pro-mining man Matthew Stevens, who has a page on Tuesdays to Fridays on the inside of the book, says Gorgon highlights reform need and again a bash of unions you can follow what's happening mm-hmm. um, the editorial the same day if you were trying to frighten off a potential 100 billion in future LNG investment in this country then the ugly face of Australian industrial relations on show at Chevron's 73 billion Gorgon LNG export project would be the way to go and on it goes why are we still uh, digging up fossil fuels well because they're because we're fossils, um, <laughs> and the same day Tuesday, this is yesterday, of course. Uh-huh. Um, unions dig in over dispute with Gorgon. So on they go. Ah, dig in. That's, yes, a, that's yes. a very good. And pun. just just to back that up, by the way, just to give the Herald, make sure the Herald Sun doesn't get away completely. Mm-hmm. Alan Moron from the Institute of Public Affairs did have a feature piece a couple of weeks ago, again saying trade unions as irrelevant as they are costly, and he wants to get rid of them altogether. But I found it interesting that the Fin Review, two pages of absolute union bashing. And not one story about the ones where workers were being totally exploited by their bosses. Isn't that interesting? That's that's fascinating. It is fascinating. Let's go to our first guest. All right. Our only guest, in fact, isn't it? Yes, our only guest. All right, we're going to go. Who is, by the way? Because I didn't know the name of the person, but I did say what we're going to do. The person's name is? Jim Dodrell. Well, of course, you gave me that over the phone the other day. Yeah, yeah that's right. Thanks. So you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM. And we're just going to go to a track while we line up our guests. This is Electronic Renaissance by Bell and Sebastian. By the way, I didn't ask you if you wanted a cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea or are you still putting a ban on yourself? Uh, still putting a ban on myself. Oh, okay. okay. Any liquids. I actually haven't, I haven't consumed any liquids at all since, since the day. What about last night? <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're late this morning, isn't it? <laughs> all right. So um, we have here on the line uh, Jim Dodrell from IRAE, which is Ipswich Residents Against Toxic Environment. Um, on this show, we've talked a lot about the Tullamarine Toxic Waste Dump, which is run by Trans-Pacific. Today, we're going to go all the way up to Queensland to talk about the Chum Toxic Waste Dump in Ipswich, which opened in 2003 and is also run by Trans-Pacific. Welcome. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Is it really called Chum? Yes. Like friendly? Uh, the <laughs> suburb is actually New Chum. Um, it was renamed um, back in the late 1800s because it was a coal mining area which um, saw a, new, a number of um, disasters where miners were killed. Oh. Uh, it was called Dangerous Hill at the time and uh, so they decided to change the name to New Chum for some reason. Well, it's a bit more catchy than uh, than Dangerous Hill. <laughs> yeah. So can we start by talking about the uh, geography of Ipswich? You mentioned uh, coal mining. There's actually uh, yes. underground coal mines all through Ipswich, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are several uh, coal seams that run under Ipswich. It's all uh, Jurassic uh, coal, and um, that uh, those coal seams have been heavily mined, uh, as I said, since the 1800s. And um, it's created a, a network of um, old underground mine shafts, uh, some of which have been prone to collapse, and um, that's created problems for people in some of the suburbs that have been built over those old mine shafts. 
And and another um, geographical feature of Ipswich is that it's quite low lying. Like in the um, 2011 Brisbane flood, uh, apparently a third of Ipswich went under. Is that right? Uh, I'm not sure of the actual um, figure, but um, quite a bit of Ipswich uh, was flooded, and that's because we're on a, a floodplain from the Great Dividing the Great Dividing Range from, uh, around the Toowoomba area. Uh, the water runs down from there through the Lockyer Valley and across Ipswich on its way uh, towards Moreton Bay. So uh, in the case of a toxic waste dump, can you tell me that they found a site that uh, wasn't on a floodplain and wasn't full of holes? Look, uh, that's been a big concern of ours. Um, When we started to do some research on this and we started looking into world's best practice for the siting and the operation of uh, a, a landfill waste dump, which included regulated waste. So that's the official word for toxic waste, if you like. Um, uh, none of the best practices were followed. Um, for example, it shouldn't be on a floodplain. It shouldn't be built over old mine shafts or, or, or mine workings. Uh, it shouldn't have any faults running through it, which this one does. It shouldn't have an aquifer running through the middle of it, which this one does. Uh, so none of the um, the guidelines, internationally accepted guidelines, were followed when this dump was sited in its current um, uh, place. Jim, was there some big hole there or something? What? What? Why did they choose that site? Yeah, look, it was an open cut mine uh, in the in the 70s and 80s, and um, rather than rehabilitate the site, you know, so they take the uh, what they call the overburden, which is you know the the sort of the soil and rock that's on top. They move it to one side, they take the coal, they extract the coal out, and then they move the overburden back in and rehabilitate the site. In this case, the overburden's still sitting there. Uh, it's a big hill right next to the open-cut mine. And uh, when they stopped extracting uh, coal from the site, they just kind of left it as a big hole in the ground, and then they sold it off to a um, the uh, either the state government or the... Um, Ipswich City Council were not sure because nobody's admitting to it. I sold it to a company who wanted to start landfilling in there. That company was then bought by Trans-Pacific and they upscaled. They went from a very small little operation in one corner of the site to a, you know, a, a, a operation which included the entire footprint. And I think that's somewhere in the order of about 80 to 90 hectares uh, of land which is being um, filled at the moment. To talk a little bit more about the geography, um, I've got a map here. Can you tell us how close uh, this dump is to where people live and go to school? Yeah, sure. Um, The suburb I live in, uh, Collingwood Park, is less than one kilometre from the site. It varies according to, you know, which street and house you're you're talking about. Uh, But in some cases, it's just uh, in the order of hundreds of metres. We're on the... Collingwood Park is on the uh, eastern side of the landfill. Um, so we very often are inundated with dust and smoke and, and all kinds of things coming off that site. Um, uh, there are four schools uh, which are in what I'd call the fallout zone, you know, for dust and smoke uh, from the site. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's been a real... A headache for the people in Collingwood Park now for several years. Mm. 
And uh, on, on to the point that we formed a group, you know, irate to combat, you know, some of the effects of, of the site. Just on that, just to clarify that background, you said several years. How long has it been going for? Uh, the site has been owned um, by Trans-Pacific since, I think, 2004. Yeah. Uh, it operated prior to that by a smaller scale company uh, since 1997. Uh, the initial approval by Ipswich Council was given in 1997. So, it, but it has ramped up massively uh, in recent years. Um, it started off as a small, what they call single cell um, operation. It's now expanded to five cells. And um, when I say a cell, you know, we're talking something which is, you know, uh, each cell is several football fields in size. You know, so it's not then a cell, you know, is misleading, makes it sound much smaller mm-hmm. than it is. Um, and not only has the size of the operation uh, ramped up significantly, but also the nature of what they're putting in there. So look, there's a lot of asbestos going in there, for example. Now, you know, like multiple truckloads per day. Um, some of that is um, from old building sites. Some of it comes from, you know, things like... Um, uh, you know, factories, um, all sorts of places, you know. So so there's asbestos. There's also regulated waste. And that regulated waste can be things like um, materials and soils and various things that are contaminated with everything from arsenic to mercury to, um, you know, all sorts of toxic materials. Um, uh, and we're not really happy about that, you know. Um, the company will claim that they they engineer the cells that they put this material in so that it doesn't leach out well we've seen several fires on the site which we believe have um, compromised the lining of those cells uh, the company hasn't denied that they so they virtually admitted that those cell liners have failed and so as a consequence you know uh, some of that material could escape into the environment um, in, but including you know, the SBL- you talked yeah. about dust blowing over regularly. Uh, yeah. Could that include asbestos or are they at least getting rid of that safely? Look, it's supposed to um, be um, brought to the site in um, in a regulated fashion. So in other words, asbestos sheets, for example, are supposed to be double wrapped in plastic and those kind of things. But look, we've um, uh, come into possession of photographs taken um, uh, on the site which show asbestos lying around uncovered, you know, over the week, over a windy weekend, you know. So we have concerns about, you know, what's claimed to be happening and what may in reality be happening uh, on the site. I I have in front of me um, a document. Uh, It's a permit to dump uh, soil contaminated with radionuclides. Can you talk about that? Yeah, look, we've asked questions about that. I mean, first of all, we had to find out what radionuclides means. And apparently that can be any radioactive material. That could be anything from, you know, um, even up to and including uranium and plutonium uh, um, material. So um, we're not saying that we believe that uranium and plutonium is going in there, but what we're saying is we are concerned that any radioactive material could be going in there. Um, the when we inquired with DEH, uh, the EPA in Queensland, uh, known as DEHP here, um, we were told that that material was um, something that came from 
I think, the shipbuilding industry, whereby they um, use some sort of radioactive blasting material on ships and then that's collected up and then brought and um, put into the, the waste landfill there at Newcham. Mm, grim. Um, so we're obviously quite concerned about that. Yeah. So I was reading um, an engineering report about Sol 5 and it said that the void is full of water and um, that they actually just pump that water out into a lake called Quarry Lake, which then uh, connects into Six Mile Creek, which connects into the Bremer River, which connects into the Brisbane River. Um, uh, it goes Six Mile Creek is direct into the Brisbane River, which oh, then right. flows to Morton Bay. Uh, look, th- that is a, a, a real concern. Um, the reason why the site was originally flooded after coal mining ceased um, was because there's a natural aquifer um, that flows directly into the void, in- into the hole in the ground. And it's not a trickle, it's like a major waterfall uh, that when they cut the, the walls of the, um, the open-cut mine, that water from the natural aquifer gushed in, and they were. It was a constant uh, pumping, you know, evacuation um, uh, exercise to try to keep it um, usable as a, as an open cut mine. When they ceased the mining, then they, uh, the the um, the pumping stopped, and the um, the actual void in the ground started to fill up. And um, so, what they've done is they've partly backfilled over the top of that but it's a loose backfill so there's still water running underneath it makes it very unstable then because you imagine trying to build a building so building a house or a high-rise building or something on top of wet loose ground you know so that's not really going to be in the long term a very stable um, structure so anything that gets put on top of that then is prone to movement, it's prone to collapse and subsidence and, and that kind of thing. But in the geological report they were also talking about just regularly pumping that water out into this lake as well. Yeah. I, th- I thought yeah, that was quite a concern. Yeah, we've raised that uh, with the company and with the EPA up here and um, <laughs> we just don't get any satisfactory answers. Um, we've been told oh well, you know, it's allowed under their licence so go away and stop complaining, you know. But the water they're pumping out ends up in this lake. Where does it end up after that? What happens at the end of it all? Okay, so the, that lake that you're talking about, we're only talking about uh, 100 metres away from the site. There's a, it's another open-cut mine which is, has filled up with water. Uh, that is connected directly to Six Mile Creek, which is only a few hundred metres from the Brisbane River then. It's a tributary of the Brisbane River. Right. Uh, and is, uh, here you go. Yeah. Go on, sorry. Uh, so, and, so that uh, flows directly to Morton Bay then. You know, that's, that's you know, a, a World Heritage area, you know, dugongs, whales, you know, all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's not a very good practice, I don't believe, by the state government here to have allowed that have, uh, to happen. I was looking at the satellite map and um, Lake Quarry is emerald green. That doesn't seem like a good colour for a lake. Yeah, it is green. Um, and yes, it, we, we have been concerned about that, but... Um, um, we've asked for water quality testing to be done there. Um, it has been done, um, but um, the state government and the company are less than generous with sharing uh, the results of that testing. But they have reported to us that the um, some of the testing has um, shown adverse um, findings sometimes, um, but they 
they maintain that it uh, could be from another source, you know, that nobody can prove it's from there. Another source, time. except for this huge yeah. dump next to it. Flowing yeah. from Fiji yeah. or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe from our, our tears. <laughs> Maybe. But just back to the uh, back to the water and groundwater, etc. Is the is this tip uh, um, sealed properly, or is it is there a big possibility of leaching into waterways and aquifers and things? Look, my personal belief is that there is a very strong um, possibility that this that what's in there could leach into the environment. In other words, into um, Six Mile Creek and the Brisbane River. Um, but I'm not a hydrologist or a geologist or anything like that, so it is just my opinion. But my opinion is based on regular um, observation at the site. Um, the, the company, since we've um, formed our group and we have uh, engaged with the company on a regular, sometimes a daily basis in regards to their practices, have actually improved some of their practices. Um, but the, there was... Oh, oh you there? You're there. Yeah. Oh, great, oh, great. We, we, we lost, lost you. you. We thought we'd... Yeah. Could you move yeah, around? No, I think it's cut in and out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All right, what were you saying um, about the successes of the group in um, changing practices? Yeah. So we've definitely um, forced the company to change practices on a number of fronts. Um, but the problem is, before we came along, uh, this uh, site was already in operation and some of the practices that went on then weren't obviously um, best practices. So there's still a possibility, a very real possibility, that down the track in six months, 12 months, maybe a few years' time, that there could be some sort of um, catastrophe, you know, for the local environment. Um, I'm aware of what happened at Tullamarine um, in Melbourne, and uh, that was fairly catastrophic, uh, what happened there. And I'm just uh, a little bit cautious that something similar could happen here at Newcham. Can we talk also about um, the issue of sovereignty? The Ipswich City Council actually tried to regulate this dump. Um, it tried to regulate how much was going into the dump. Um, and then they were overruled by the by the courts. The government. So who, uh, yeah, who, who um, is allowed to regulate this dump? Well, look, it's, um, it's both uh, council and state government. And the problem is um, they overlap in some ways. Uh, so, in other words, um, the council gives uh, the original permit to use the site. You know, it's like you um, starting a business or opening a factory or something. You get a permit from the council to start with. But then what actually happens in the site and the type of materials accepted into the site and that kind of thing are... Um, are actually ruled by state government, in particular DEHP, Department of Environment and Heritage Protection, and um, what they it's it can be quite confusing because they can issue concurrent licenses. So, for example, they can issue a license to accept asbestos uh, from building sites, but then they can uh, issue another license to accept asbestos from a different um, background or different circumstances and those licenses can actually overlap each other so then when it comes down to looking at the detail of the license so in other words should the asbestos be buried every hour of the day or once a day or twice a day or whatever 
uh, you can get conflicting rulings depending on which license was issued and what type of materials coming in. And that applies to all, not just asbestos, but all the other materials coming in. It also applies to the leachate, which comes off because obviously with a, a uh, large dump like that, there's leachate constantly flowing out of the bottom of the dump and they have to deal with how to dispose of that leachate somehow. And when you have over overlapping licenses, uh, that can be really difficult to try to follow, you know, how it's done and, you know, uh, and what act what rules uh, govern that. I think the ultimate answer to who rules the thing is Trans-Pacific themselves, probably. They just go to government and get what they want. That's, well, that's right. That, and and that's, even when they sorry, do... Sorry, I was going to say, that's, yeah. that's certainly been the case here at Tullamarine, where you seem to be having the yeah. same problem with your EPA, where they tend to go along with the company on almost everything. They do. And not only that, but they'll retrospectively uh, accommodate the company too. So uh, our group have found um, Trans-Pacific numerous times... Uh, in breach of the terms of their license. And uh, so they've been non-compliant with their license and with their permit. Uh, some might say breaking the law. And when we've raised that with um, the EPA up here and with council, not only have they uh, changed the, uh, basically moved the goalposts in favour of the company, but they've done it retrospectively. So, in other words, instead of fining the company for doing something in breach of their license for the last six months, twelve months, whatever, they will change. They move the goalposts, change the, the rules in favour of the company, and do it retrospectively. So the company pays no penalty, basically. Mm. And you mentioned also we've talked about asbestos, radioactive waste, and you said all the other materials. What what are some of the other materials that are being thrown in there? Yeah, look. Um, there are. Um, it's difficult to follow the paper trail sometimes, but we've done our best. We've done um, some um, what's known as RTI um, requests up here in Queensland. Um, you know, so that's your um, request for information. Yeah, freedom FOI down here, yeah. Like FOI, and um, we have come up with um, all sorts of materials um, from, uh, for example, from Amberley Air Force Base. Um, there were. That's the, I think, as far as I know, the largest um, military air base in, in Australia. And um, they fly the F-111s from there. And they have a, had a maintenance program there where they were cleaning the tanks of the, um, the, the fighter jets and that kind of thing. And the soil all around the, um, the workshops where they were doing that was contaminated with various, uh, you know, fr quite toxic materials. And so what they did was they just bulldozed that soil up uh, you know, the top couple of inches of um, soil, put it on the back of a truck and brought it up to um, to New Chum's Trans-Pacific site and just dumped it all in there, you know. So we have concerns about that, you know. Uh, it, and there doesn't seem to be any good paper trail on any of that. Like when we asked the company about it, they said, oh, we don't have the records to show that. Uh, we had to actually go through... Um, uh, the military to find out that that had actually occurred. So the company themselves uh, either aren't very good at keeping records or are deliberately sort of keeping us in the dark in relation to some of those sort of fairly highly toxic uh, materials that have gone into the site. But there's there's permits for heavy metals, PCBs, PAH, dialdrone, acid sulfate, benzene, arsenic. Yeah. 
And some of those are in the, you know, tens of tons, hundreds of tons, thousands of tons. And uh, I remember uh, sitting across the table uh, from Trans-Pacific Management and asking them, could they provide us with a list of those materials that you've just uh, named and give us a breakdown of tonnages and that kind of thing uh, that are uh, currently stored on the site, in the ground on the site. And they've just refused. They said their records aren't good enough to be able to provide that information and, and they've mixed it in with other materials, so therefore they don't believe that they should have to account for it. And, you know, they've been a very difficult company to deal with, uh, I have to say. And um, uh, as you've just said, we have the records that show those materials going in there, but there's a... There's a um, there's a an environment or a, a atmosphere of denial from the company. They just don't want to discuss it. You know. You would have thought. And, uh, it, so, yeah, go on, Jim. So. I was going to say, you, say you know, and that that that, that sort of um, atmosphere of denial permeates right through the EPA up here as well. The EPA seem to, you know, whatever Trans-Pacific say, the EPA seem to repeat the same storyline. You know, it's it's quite frustrating at times. I was going to say, to we simple lay people, one would have thought that keeping records of that sort of material should be a, a basic condition of their licence. Um, that they, that they're, not, they're not keeping records is quite amazing. Well, they probably are, but they're not telling yeah. us. That, that could be the case, yeah. I, I want to talk about the waste coming from New South Wales. So, with the um, court... Um, agreement that I previously mentioned is it's actually there's no limits to how much waste can be on this site and because it's cheaper to transport waste from New South Wales to Queensland than pay New South Wales charges um, people are trucking up uh, waste from New South Wales first of all it seems to me like that there might be a bit of a danger um, with transporting waste that far definitely Uh, yeah Look, in, in, um, in the case of New South Wales, they've brought in proximity law, and uh, that just started, I believe, at the beginning of this year. And uh, so what that means now is um, anybody who produces waste, um, to my understanding of this new law is that they cannot transport that waste more than 200 kilometres from the, uh, the source point. So what that means now is that it has um, reduced the number of trucks coming from New South Wales driving up to Queensland to dump, um, but we still do that. Two hundred kilometres still includes the um, the um, north coast of uh, New South Wales, so um, we are still getting some coming through. But I we've also raised that with the company, and now they've told us we haven't seen it in action, but they've told us they're turning around trucks that come from New South Wales, um, more than 200 kilometres from their source point. So how many trucks a day come through? Uh, In total, it would be in the hundreds. Um, It obviously varies day by day, Um, you know, but it could be, you know, on average, just, I guess, maybe two to 300 very large trucks a day. And how much waste is estimated to be there already? Uh... We're not really sure on that because um, the figures aren't all available. Uh, we've tried to um, ascertain what the current rate of dumping is, and that fluctuates, but it, it's up to about a million tonnes a year. Um, and it can be, uh, I believe, 
uh, can be as low as uh, you know half a million a year, but um, uh, they have had years um, where it's been up to a million tons a year. So uh, that's probably puts it up there in the category of one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, dump in Australia. Well, new chum sounds like a kids' program in the late, late afternoon. We we are talking about uh, this is at Ipswich. We are talking about uh, toxic waste up there, Trans Pacific, the same company that runs Tullamarine here. And uh, Jim, eventually it's got to fill up. At that stage, what do they say is going to happen to it? Okay, so again, uh, because of you know, community action from our group, um, we've actually caught the company out. Uh, they did want to build this dump. Um, 100 metres higher than the the um, normal ground level um, or, or existing uh, ground level. Um, what we've done is we've actually taken them to task about that. Um, we found the relevant permits, uh, the original permits, which said that they had to um, restore the site to the normal topology of the you know the surrounding area. And so what we've done is we've basically reduced forced the company to reduce the lifespan of this site from about 50 years from now to less than 10 years from now. So, uh, But it's looking that might even be less now because, we're, as I said, we, we do engage with the company. We have forced them to retreat on some of their ambitions. And um, so that could be the lifespan could be down now as low as seven or eight years. And what happens to that hill you talked about, which was from the old mine originally? Is that going to stay there? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the uh, the original name referred to, what, what the hill was or whatever. Um, um, but we do have original uh, contour maps of the area, and the site will now be returned to something similar to the original contour of, of the area. So um, there is a hill... Uh, in in there, uh, which goes up to about 75 metres above sea level, I think. But the company, uh, in their plans, wanted to go another 100 metres above that. Uh, we've we've um, luckily been able to stop them uh, from achieving that. And um, so now the site, when it is capped eventually, should look something like the surrounding um, uh, uh, topography. But you wouldn't want to live near it, would you, really? I mean, you do, but you wouldn't want to... <laughs> Yeah, look, you know, um, we don't give up without a fight. You know, uh, some people have moved out of the area. Um, you know, I come from, you know, fighting Irish background. I don't believe in, in uh, walking away. You know, I'll always fight something. I'll always fight for the, you know, the worker or the or the, or the little person kind of thing. And, and that's, you know, why I'm still in there. Well, Ipswich is a great town. I know not a lot of people say that, but... <laughs> I got to say, you well, know, no, Ipswich is a great town. Ipswich is a great town uh, with some really great people, and we have some really fantastic community organisations here, um, and that's what keeps it going. If we were to rely on the the local politicians around here, um, you know, we'd have all sort of given up a long time ago. Um, it's community, you know. We have some great community around Ipswich, and uh, that's what keeps us going. Can you talk about how people can um, get in contact with Irate and? In, in what ways they yep. could contribute? Yep. Uh, look, uh, first point of call would be our website, irate.org.au. Um, we have Facebook, Twitter, and all the you know usual uh, social media uh, outlets as well. And uh, they can contact uh, me directly. I'm the president uh, uh, of the group at the moment. I'm president at irate.org.au is my email address. 
and we're happy to um, discuss um, anything with anybody. Uh, we've also um, um, linked up with some of the other local environment groups, and uh, we have a very good relationship. You know, we um, we all work together to make it such a better place. You know, um, so yeah, we welcome anybody uh, along. One of the things at Telemarine that's been talked about and which the government denies, but which the local people say is definite, is the, the much higher incidence around the place of various diseases, including lots of cancers that are you know, just simply yeah. higher, than, higher than you'd expect normally. Um, yeah. Any problems up there about health situations for people? At this stage, not that I'm aware of. Um, we do have people um, complain quite a lot about various uh, respiratory um, problems, but it's difficult to link that to the site. Um, even though we have engaged with the Department of Health up here, um, you know, they're funding for long-term and even medium-term research on that kind of thing um, is very limited. So at this stage, I wouldn't say for sure that we have had adverse health, of health effects, but I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't be surprised if we did show clusters of um, various illnesses um, around the site. You know, um, I've got an open mind on that at this stage. Um, before they put together the dump, they didn't make any environmental or health base information, did they? No, I don't think there, there is any baseline data as far as I'm aware. Mm, that's very clever of them because you don't, you don't want that. <laughs> so what sort of actions are you doing that people can get involved in? Uh, we currently have a um, what they call a CRG, Community Reference Group, um, which is um, a monthly or two-monthly um, meeting where we sit down across the table with um, Trans-Pacific people, City Council people and also um, EPA people and um, we discuss uh, the concerns uh, or some of the um, applications that Trans-Pacific might have before council or state government, and we debate some of those uh, issues. And um, we've had quite a lot of success uh, in doing that. That's probably, apart from actual site monitoring, uh, that's probably our main focus at the moment. The site monitoring is where we, I mean, we're all people who have jobs and families and that kind of thing, but we do our best to go up and keep an eye on what's going in and out of the site, keep an eye on, you know, because there are fires on a regular basis up there, we try to document that and give that information to the relevant authorities. And um, and also we, you know, like everybody else, you know, we enjoy our suburb. We often walk around the area and we'll make observations that may be uh, related to the actual uh, dump site. Mm. Um, so yeah, so everything from a sort of a high level to direct engagement down to just you know sort of observation. Of course, ultimately, the biggest solution to these problems, as we keep saying on this program every time we talk about it, is for those who profit from such things to to produce less and less of that sort of waste. I mean, um, the ultimate solution is is don't produce the sort of waste we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, and the. Um, uh, Newman State Government, um, who um, have since been replaced um, by a Labor State Government here in Queensland, but but Newman um, abolished the um, waste levy uh, up here in Queensland, which just encouraged companies to dump more and more. Um, we're hoping that the current Labor Government uh, under Anastasia Palaszczuk will actually reinstate that waste levy 
and therefore discourage companies from dumping and find better ways to to manage waste. You know, uh, so then we don't have to have these super dumps like uh, the one at Newcham. Well, thanks for appearing on the show, and I wish your campaign the best of luck. Thank you very much, and and, and thanks for having me on. Okay, Jim, good luck with it all, and uh, let's hope you knock them off. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks a lot. We'll do our best. Right. All right, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. And are we going to talk to Helen Vandenberg? No, I was saying um, earlier in the, before you arrived, while you were in the, in the cab feeling there frustrated, um, that I left a message with her yesterday and um, and she didn't get back. But I was saying that, that the Vandenbergs have spent so much time at meetings and out that you often get a call during the show to say, I got your message, it's okay, but she hasn't. Uh, there might be a way or something, but... Um, so anyway, she hasn't got back, so no, we haven't got her, but we'll try and get on in the next few weeks and mm. follow up again. But you know, it's, it's classic, isn't it? These, and it's the same, it's interesting that it's the same company, Trans-Pacific, which of course are a major uh, company in this area of toxic waste and, and dumping and things. Dumping being the word for it, dumping it on the community, really. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's really surprising about the um, the waste levy, you think, that the, you know, because it's not, it's not free to store waste. No. Well, it is if you're trans-Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. Uh, so maybe they will move on that because it would seem logical to, to do it. You would hope, in fact, now, although they've had a Labor government back way back when the thing started anyway, I mean, there's been yeah. Labor, so you're not going to... No, you don't, you don't rely on them, do you? No, not really. <laughs> Silly thought, Kevin. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been um, Bly before then. Yeah. Um, all right, well... There we are. That was depressing. City limits. That was depressing. That was wonderful. Um, next week we're going to talk economics, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And we've got you've got. Uh, we've got, got grief. Yeah. Um, that's Professor John Griffith. Mm. And uh, no, sorry, Phil Griffith. Phil Griffith. Yeah. Phil yeah. Griffith. I was thinking. John, yeah. 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 Um, and we're going to talk about what are the environmental consequences. If, hypothetically, there was a worldwide decent minimum wage. It's a bit of a thought experiment. Right, okay. So it's, and, uh, it's yeah, unionism good. meets environmentalism. That's good. And it's, um, it's uh, we thought being a fifth Wednesday, when, again, we've got no specific subject, we'd try and have a day on these economic issues because we're also hoping to talk to John Passant, our regular, irregular, or irregular, regular, whichever way you look at him, um, who talks to us about tax and economic issues as well. So we'll... Hopefully have both of them on next week and and absolutely bore people to death with economics. Yeah, it should be quite an engaging discussion. I'm yeah. looking forward to it myself. Shall, shall we go to a track and say goodbye? Why don't we go to a track and say goodbye? All right. Goodbye. And you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, City Limits. And this is Spectrum with Latex Store Morning. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.